My name is Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 14 of the show where we are continuing our journey through early Marvel. And we are in a very important month. This is December 1962. Not only is it the end of our first calendar year doing, you know, of coverage of this podcast, but two very important series were introduced this month. And those two are the topic of this episode. One new character, two new series. Yep. Very um, exciting. And by series, uh, of course, one of them, Tales of Suspense, was already going. But a new oh. a new strip is introduced to that book that will um, fast become a very important part of the show. So we're going to talk about Tales of, of Suspense tonight, number 39. And not to keep you in, suspe- in suspense. Boy, I can't say that word. But that features the first story of Iron Man. But do we know, and I'm throwing this at you without having done any research myself, what Tales of Suspense was up to prior to this? Was it just a monster book? or? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, Strange Tales, and Journey into Mystery were all pretty much interchangeable titles. Mm-hmm. Um, Seems I, like it. I think the only exception to that would be Amazing Adventures, which I think was primarily a Steve Ditko-driven book. Excuse me, Amazing Adult Fantasy was primarily a Steve Ditko-driven book, and then that was canceled uh, right after the first Spider-Man story. Yeah. Which we'll talk Who more about is, that when we get to the Spider-Man part of this I was going to say, that's our other, the other series. So we got Tales of Suspense number 39 featuring Iron Man for the first time, and then we have a new series called The Amazing Spider-Man, which you may or may not have heard of, which doesn't feature Spider-Man for the first time since we already covered him in episode four, but this is his first book, and pretty much where he, you know, soars like a rocket. Weird coincidence. We are doing our recording of this episode on the day that episode four dropped with Amazing Fantasy 15. So I listened to our thoughts on that book this morning on the drive to work. And How were they? We, we, we had some pretty insightful thoughts. We didn't talk about the book as long as we might have done um, as far as like getting into the nitty gritty of the plot. Um, but, but I thought we had good I think, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was just a big love fest, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically it. And I, I drew the parallel with Dr. Horrible's sing- Have you seen Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog since we talked? Well, I had seen it before, but no, not since we talked. Oh, that's right. No, there was somebody else I was talking to that hadn't seen it. I've talked to it's, several people who didn't know what it was, and they're nerds. I'm like, what? I know. What's wrong with that? That's weird. But it was a while ago. Yes. And now we're going to dive into Iron Man, Tales of Suspense 39. Now, this is December of 1962, of course. And so all of the or both of these books were being published in the second week of December, which I'm looking real quick to see what week that was. And um, that was December 10th, 1962. December 10th. Okay. So my turn to summarize. And I'm just going to read the cover. That's kind of cheating a little bit. But I like this. Uh, who or what is the newest, most breathtaking most sensational superhero of all and then like there's this three panels on the side which they end up doing on this title a bunch of times i think or some sort of format like it and it just says who 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 and it's like this guy these hands like taking one piece of the armor at a time as if to put them on and then the over to the right it says iron man he lives he walks he conquers and it's pretty cool i i see this and i think who 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 are you (laughs) <laughs> right? Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
but okay, no looking now. This is our custom. Uh, this book opens, I think, with Iron Man. Iron Man opens with Tony Stark, who will become Iron Man. Spoilers. Um, demonstrating his awesome transistor technology to the army or some sort of military branch. And basically what it is is he has this little transistory thing that when he switches it on, it like increases the power of a regular size magnet like by a billion. And when he does it, it shows this magnet ripping this at least 10 inch thick metal door off its hinges and kind of bending it in half. And so the army is like, whoa, that's super cool. We have a lot of stuff that we need to carry. So making magnets really powerful would be awesome. Why don't you uh, come to the war with us and we can show you what we're what we're needing. And it kind of cuts like to this little flashbacky sort of intro of Tony being a millionaire and a womanizer or a playboy. I guess they called it back in 1962. Uh, but then it cuts again to Vietnam and this warlord. I'm trying to think of his name. Wong I think. It, okay. See, I was going to guess, and then I thought, it's such a stereotype, horrible name that if I guess and guess wrong, then I'm just outing myself. Uh, <laughs> so I'll let you tell me. Wong Chu. Okay, cool. Wong Chu, he's taken over another village, killed everybody, and the people he doesn't kill, he takes prisoners, and then he delights in like using his size to push them around and essentially have wrestling matches that they don't want to partake in, which I assume end in their death, or at least physical injury. And like he just goes around showing how awesome he is by throwing these people around and then he's like hey let's go to the next village and take out more then we cut to the next village where there happens to be tony stark and the military and they're kind of consulting as to what they can do with this awesome transistor magnet technology Uh, but before they can figure it out wong chu and his troops attack tony runs he hits a uh like a landmine kind of uh deal or something Mm -hmm. some sort of like sabotage thing and he gets hurt and they capture him and he wakes up and he's dying. He knows he's dying. He seems to be like able to move around and, you know, it's just fine. But there's like shrapnel in there in and near his heart and it's going to kill him. Everybody knows he's dying. But they're like, hey, you're Tony Stark, I think. You should make us powerful weapon. And Tony's thinking in his head, I'll just agree and then make a weapon that kills everybody because – I'm a patriot. So he shakes hands and they both like laugh and smile and, you know, go their separate ways. And then later they also bring in like a, a guy that they have captured named Jensen yep, or Jensen. something like Jensen. Right. And he's an old guy that he's been in prison forever. turns out he's a physicist or something that, or an engineer or something that Tony so well known that Tony recognizes him by sight. And the two of them decide, well, let's pull our talents and really, uh, build something what do we what do you say with your transistor technology and my awesome you know physics or engineering brain let's make a suit of armor and so they make the armor and the armor is also built to not only make the wearer powerful but it has a chest piece that like keeps tony alive that they invent just the nick of time because he's starting to sweat and look like he's about to fall over dead but they put that chest piece on him and then that like keeps the shrapnel at bay but he has to wear it all the time so that kind of sucks um but anyway They finish the armor. He gets in it. They're powering it up. And then Jensen decides, you know, they're going to come before you're done. So I better run out and cause a distraction. So he runs out, locks the door behind him and just goes running through the hall saying, you know, down with Wong Chu. He's horrible, blah, blah, blah. He gets all the people to like chase after him. And unfortunately, they gun him down before Iron Man is powered up. But Iron Man does get powered up just in time. And a couple soldiers come around 
to check on him and he uses his new armor to like he's got suction cups or something and he suctions to the the ceiling so they can't find him right. so they're all looking around they're all looking around for him and everything and then they leave and then he gets back down and he says okay I'm going to take out this place and we cut to Wong Chu again doing his stupid wrestling thing with his prisoners being a big meanie head and then he hears someone say why don't you take me on and he turns around and it's Iron Man and Iron Man easily picks him up and acts, treats him like a propeller right out of a cartoon. Pretty much just spins him around over his head and then throws him on the ground, which doesn't go well for Wong Chu. It doesn't make him happy. And he immediately screams like a loser and has his guards like try and kill Iron Man. But of course, the bullets just bounce off his armor. And then they say like, then he screams and says, well, get some grenades or something. But before they can do any of that, he pulls out a little transistor again, plugs it into a magnet and like pretty much makes all the metal just fly out of their hands and stuff, which makes them go crazy and they all run away into the jungle. So then Wong Chu runs up into like a broadcasting booth and starts screaming at them to come back and bring thousands and we'll overpower him. But Iron Man takes over the radio stream with his armor and tells them all to be disloyal to Wong Chu and run away. Um, And meanwhile, he's also trying to cut into the tower with his awesome transistor powered finger saw. And when he gets in there, Wong Chu like throws a rock filled filing cabinet down the stairs and it knocks Tony on his back and he can't get up and Wong Chu kind of like jumps over him and runs away. But Iron Man finally musters like the last of his electrical juice and pushes the filing cabinet off him and he stumbles out and he sees Wong Chu running away towards a uh, like a munitions um, storage unit or something. And so he squirts the ground, the the trail that Wong Chu is leaving, and he lights it on fire, and then fire and explosives don't mix, and it seems like the entire town pretty much blows up at that point. Um, it's kind of like a faraway shot of just this huge explosion. No more Wong Chu. Um, Tony's hurting. He's low on energy, and he kind of stumbles away, wondering what his life is going to be like now as the Iron Man. The first time I read this story was right after seeing the Iron Man film. They nailed it, huh? They really did. Like everything about this story that's important is in mm. the film. And I everything know. in this story that is questionable is removed for the film. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, because we've said before, like Hulk and Fantastic Four, those origins are dated and they can't do it in a movie. Uh-huh. I remember when they announced Iron Man, I was just convinced they weren't even going to do any of this. Right. You know, it was going to be something else. And the fact that all they did was pretty much switch Vietnam to the Middle East. uh, That's it. Everything else is pretty much it. Yeah. It's amazing. I love that they did that, too, that they just stayed true to the comic and they sold it and it worked. And over the decades, whenever Tony Stark has, has referenced his past, the location of this event has changed. Sure. And it had been shifted to Afghanistan a few years before the movie. So uh-huh. it wasn't a super original idea for the movie, but it was an important move. And I think it worked really well, especially with the 2008 film scripted in 2005, 2006, whenever we're only a handful of minutes after 2001. Um, right. Just for that moment in the world stage, that was, that, was, that, was, uh, that was the most reasonable choice. I mean, whenever you have a modern character or perpetually never aging character with origins in war, whatever decade you're writing that story or rewriting that story, it's going to have to be whatever war is closest around when all this is supposed to be happening. So same with Punisher, like he, his origins were Vietnam. I don't think they can be Vietnam anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I mean, that's one cool thing about Captain America is the whole Frozen gimmick. You could still keep him in World War II forever. He never has to slide up to anything else because I don't think he would work as like the super soldier of Vietnam or Korean no, you're War. Right. His the very nature of Captain America is so tied to World War II. There was mm-hmm. never a time in history when a, a, a cultural mindset would spawn something like Captain America right. the, way, the way he exists. Right. So they really saved themselves on that one because having to slip that around would have not been great for him. But well, It's kind of like Nick Fury. He, he talks about back in the war and they're like, which one? He's like, does it matter? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's Nick well, Fury. I think they, he was in the war. They, I was in the war. They also gave him like anti-aging serum or something, I think. But yeah. I don't remember. And then I don't know how that works. And a son, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, we read a lot of these comics, and they're all awesome. But sometimes there's a little monotony in reading them. So I thought for this one, I'd be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pick a random word, and every time I read it, I'm just going to have a shot. And I picked Transistor and almost died. <laughs> wow. No, I'm making all that up. But, man, they say the word Transistor a lot. They are definitely a thing and i'm pretty sure that stanley has decided they were as miraculous as magnetism oh they're the transistors that power magnetism so yeah 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 and yeah now the thing is transistors are a really freaking cool technological development absolutely nothing about modern electronics or computing could exist without transistors they're really important they're really super cool in ways yeah. that have nothing to do with what is being depicted in the story. <laughs> it's funny how he how he how much detail he tries to go into on these early stories. Where you know, eventually, it's like you know, Iron Man's power just works. Iron Man's armor just works. We don't really mm-hmm. have we don't need the explanation. The more you try and explain it, the worse it comes off sometimes. And, and, so like, and the movie doing a sort of magical power source like the arc reactor, right? And nobody understands it because nobody can invent it except Tony. Right. Tony Stark built it in a cave. With a box you of know, scraps. With a box of scrap. I'm not Tony Stark. And that just goes sur- – that's just service to the story to show us that Tony Stark is the most brilliant person in the entire world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that that is like the one down thing maybe on this is like everything is explained with transistors. And it's kind of a bummer like when Iron Man has to stop and pull out a magnet and stick a transistor box in it and flip the switch and all that. It's like, yeah, pretty soon he's just going to hold his hand out and, you know, magnetism is going to happen. And um, Iron Man in the first opening splash has an antenna sticking out of oh. his shoulder. And as I'm going yeah. through, I'm looking to see, is does he have this antenna? And he has it, but it's usually telescoped down, which makes well, me think that it's actually stabbing down into his shoulder. <laughs> and every now and then yeah. it emerges bloody to receive signals. Or it's one of those like, you know, it comes and goes, though. Because I was scrolling to the part where he actually takes over the radio, which is when you would maybe want an antenna, and there's nothing there at all. Hmm. So that's weird. But yeah, on some panels, you're right. There's like this little tiny antenna sticking out. Don Heck, everybody. Yeah, well, okay, so this is Don Heck. He was doing um, the art on Ant-Man this Mm -hmm. So as they're expanding their catalog, Jack Kirby is having to choose what he's going to draw, and he turns over Ant-Man to Don Heck who is also hired to do um, Iron Man. And I think, in my limited Iron Man experience, I think Don Heck and his development with this character is like crucial to how this character exists in my mind. Well, I think, like like I said in Ant-Man, I really like the way he draws Hank Pym, and I think the way he draws Tony Stark is no exception. He's good at drawing like that 
that magazine handsome, that 40s mm-hmm. magazine guy handsome. And Tony Stark looks like that. I love this panel on page five where they're both like, where like Wong Chu's like, you know, you're going to build this weapon for me. And there's all these thoughts of Tony, like, no way am I going to do that. But then the panel is him smiling and going, hey, you're the man. Of course I'm going to do it. You know? Yeah, like finger guns. I'm totally going to do it for you. <laughs> it's It's a great depiction so yeah that's like right out of the gate tony stark is you know the robert downey jr tony stark i guess and when i see that particular panel you were talking about i think about the you know he's not going to let us go and jensen agreeing he's not going to let us Mm -hmm. um as they agree when open the opening splash is interesting because it says watch his awesome approach listen to his ponderous footsteps (laughs) As he lumbers closer. Now, when I think ponderous footsteps, I'm thinking Frankenstein's monster. I'm thinking a mummy or 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 the water shiver in Jurassic Park as the T-Rex lumbers closer. Uh-huh. Not well, fast. I don't know that he's fast yet. This is his, I invented it in a cave armor. Yes. And like the movie, it's gray, it's big, it's boxy. He can't even figure out how to stand in it for at first. There's like this whole page of him falling over and trying to learn how to rewalk. I love it. Um, so you could argue that like this is just a big lumbering way of him getting out of this one particular situation. And then he goes home and he perfects it and, you know, and uh, makes a more like a uh, human sized version, I guess, or a tighter well, fit. Well, in theory, he's going to have this boxy suit for several issues. He paints it gold. He does. Yeah. Yeah. It's not until... Well, I don't know what the number is, but eventually he'll get that classic red and gold look, mm-hmm. which which will last like forever. Right. And I say that in a good way because I love that look. And then now it's like seems like every other issue he has a new armor design because they just can't stop themselves. But uh, yeah, so this early one does seem a little less technologically advanced than his, you know, whatever Mark Mark Three, Mark Two. I don't know what it's called. This one's the Mark One, obviously. Right. This is Mark One. Um. Whenever they go to the Anthony Stark, rich, handsome, known as a glamorous playboy, I'm hearing the movie flashback as we look at his life. Mm-hmm. Just, just that 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 feeling of going through his life after he gets shot in Afghanistan in the movie. Um, it kind of plays here, but it's really, really brief. It's only two panels. That's only where Wong Chu, who, by the way, we can probably assume that these men are speaking their native language. Uh huh. And yet we're getting stilted English in the speech balloon. Yeah, and they're yellow, and they have bushy eyebrows. and So yeah. it's a little awkward still. But uh, I do have the recolored digital one, and so their flesh tones are more reasonable. Straight up yellow for me. but yeah. Doesn't affect the, the really bad line work, like on the bottom of page three. Uh, the guy behind Wong Chu. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, well, that's just what are you going to do. 60s, everybody. Yeah. Am I the only one who hears Tu Wong Chu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Nimar? It is a weird name, and that's one of the reasons why I wasn't sure. I was going to guess Wong Chu, but then I thought, God, that just sounds so, you know, horribly stereotyped and racist. It can't possibly be that name, but it was, so. (laughs) Wang Fong, Wong Chu, what? I don't know what it was. Um, He stumbles over a tripwire, which triggers the bomb. Not necessarily one of his own bombs like they do in the movie. No, but, um, no. That that's the one thing. Like in the movie, they really sell this idea that not only is he mad that he finally sees horror for the first time and stuff, but it's like his own weapons that are causing it. Which I think is a 
story development for Tony down the road. Yes. But they're consolidating well, it for the film, which is what you do. Well, obviously, I mean, I don't know when, because I haven't read a lot of Iron Man, but obviously the most famous Iron Man story arc, Armor Wars, is kind of about people misusing his tech and him trying to take it all back. Right. Um, but that's well after he's Iron Man. I have um, a feeling that there's at some point that, that Stark Stark's business stops doing munitions, like in the film. Right. So at some point he becomes like a pacifist. Mm-hmm. At least in terms of business, he becomes a pacifist, um, which they don't sell here at all. And I don't think that they would in 1962 want a character that's like, I'm anti-war and I'm not going to sell guns anymore. Oh, that gets into the whole thought behind Tony Stark. Okay, Tony Stark is deliberately a creation by Stan Lee to be everything that counterculture hate. He wanted hmm. to make a superhero that was everything that the new generation hates and still have him be the protagonist. So he's a munitions manufacturer. He's pro-war. He's rich. He's yep. all this stuff. And yet he's also the hero. They even gave him a mustache. They even gave him a mustache. You know, sometimes I like to put, um, you know, when I'm just kind of doing thought experiments, I like to put words together in an order that has never been heard before. Like, you know, rutabaga peanut butter or um, I was going to leave my child with him. I wasn't sure if I should. And then I saw his mustache. Um, Okay. Anyway, I, I, I'm totally stealing a joke from a comedy sketch by Bo Burnham. But I uh, had to, and I'm sorry. So there, there's okay. Um, <sighs> yeah, he has a mustache. It never goes away either. It's always there. Pretty much always, yeah. I would hate to say never in a long-lasting character like this, but that is his staple. And Jensen, I feel like I feel like if he shaved, put on glasses, and cut his hair, he would look just like Jensen in the movie. Yeah, even though they're like a completely different culture, but it yeah. still works. It's just it's like the you, narrow face, the sort of, you know, high cheekbones that he's got going on there. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting is like Jensen in the movie was sort of just an assistant by proximity kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did save his life. So he was a doctor, I guess. Right. A physician or something. Yeah. Cause I don't he shows up it, at Iron Man 3 as a um, as an inventor. So he, he knows he knows some stuff about what is going on. Well, next to Tony, he pretty much was an assistant and just did whatever Tony told him to do, mostly, yeah. I imagine. But in this, it looks like he's legit, like, 50-50 helping him with the project. Yeah, well, he is the greatest physicist of all. And I'm wondering if maybe Henry Pym built on some of Jensen's ideas to become the greatest scientist ever. Yeah. I mean, Tony has it on paper, an Iron Man fantastic great idea so iron man so technically tony invented it but like every other panel is jensen working on it Mm -hmm. so i just and also as the panels progress tony gets sicker and sicker and jensen keeps working on it to save his life so maybe in a way we could credit the original iron man as like at least like 30 percent jensen or only 30 percent tony or only 30 percent tony yeah depending um but you're talking about tony getting sicker which which i need to bring up a very important part about the whole Iron Man concept at its core that doesn't make sense. Okay. And that is looking at page six, panel two, a mighty electronic body to keep your heart beating after the shrapnel reaches it. So you've got these jagged bits of metal that are going to creep into your heart and slice through the muscles. Hmm. But we're yeah. going to power your heart to keep on beating, slowly squeezing and releasing those jagged pieces of metal. 
over and over again for all your life. <laughs> yeah. I think in the movie they made it so that it's just magnetism that keeps the shrapnel from getting deeper. Right. Keeps the shrapnel from his heart. That makes yeah. sense. I like that. Yeah. I guess the overall idea is once again, Stan's come up with a superhero who has problems. In this case, he's the invincible Iron Man as Iron Man, but without a suit, he's the most mortal of moral characters who actually would probably die if he took a suit off. Also, another so, very important aspect of Iron Man, panel five of the same page, all activity must be coordinated perfectly. The iron frame must duplicate every action of the human body. Next panel, there, the self-lubrication system is completed. Wow. And, and it's just like, I, I'm glad that they're covering all their bases with their Iron Man. You know, this is yeah. this is good thinking. See, that's, that's again going over, you know, with the too much explanation on Stan's part. He really likes to think these things out, which I guess probably in 1962 we appreciated. But now I feel like, you know, you could just leave stuff to the imagination and we don't have to pick it apart. <laughs> you know? I mean, I like magnet magnets pulling shrapnel from your heart. That's all you got to say. Everything else, I don't know how it works. I don't know why you can move your arms just by thought or whatever, but it's cool. We, we assume you know how to do it. Right. And every other action of the human body that needs a self-lubrication system. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff with Yinsen on page seven was captured so perfectly in the film. Yeah. Where he flips the switch to start charging up the armor, runs off to buy Iron Man some time, gets caught by the guards in the hallway, and we hear the shots from Iron yeah. Man's lab. Yeah. That was oh. a very intense scene. That was such a good scene. Yeah. And considering, you know, Robert Downey Jr. is just stuck in an Iron Man suit, not moving the entire scene, and they still managed to make it super dramatic. It was they, really they, good. They really did. Yeah. And so, Poor like you said, it's, it's a little bit of slapstick humor as he tries to figure out how to move the armor. Um, uh-huh. but then he does it. He flies up to the underside of the ceiling. The first thing yeah. he does is he pulls a Spider-Man hiding from Aunt May. Uh, that, that is kind of a bummer that the first action of Iron Man is to put suction cups on his hands. And what does he say? He uses his transistor powered air pressure jets to fly up to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, eh, like I would have rather he just punched those two guards and moved on with his day, but. Fortunately, Yinsen and I equipped my iron body with many attachments. That is... <laughs> that Flashback is the, to him being a playboy, yeah. Right. The Batman utility belt of the uh, of the Iron Man costumes. He can pull whatever yeah. he wants to out of it. Yeah. But there's also some, some really good pathos at the top of that page. You know, He's standing there in his suit realizing that in order to live, in order to keep living, mm-hmm. he is now tied to this suit forever. My brain still thinks, my heart still beats. But in order to remain alive, I must spend the rest of my life in this iron prison. Yeah, and it's more than just whatever that the arc reactor circle. He has to wear, at least for a good while, the entire chess piece. Mm-hmm. So I guess no more casually hooking up with women unless he can explain that, I suppose. Especially I, I, if he's trying exactly to keep it a secret. I don't know how much of this earlier I mean, you've read, but that's exactly what we see happening. He is None. totally cock-blocking himself for the, for the next several issues. Yeah, I imagine he'd have to be. Um, Wong Chu is all beating up people, and then he sees Iron Man. He's like, maybe not. That's a cool scene. I like that Iron Man showed up in, like, clothes. Yeah. For no reason in particular. But it was kind of cool. Like, he turns around, and there's a guy in a trench coat and a hat, and he's like, who would dare challenge me, the greatest wrestler of all time? And then he takes his clothes off, and it's Iron Man. I I have to question some things, though. Like, sometimes, okay, so... Stanley gets these pages that Don Heck has drawn. In panel three, Iron Man is reaching up to his jacket, as you wish, Tyrant. 
first I shall remove my clothes. <laughs> and the next panel is Wong Chu with a flabbergasted look on his face. And he says, why do you stare, Wong Chu? What is wrong? And it's just like, <laughs> Stan. Yeah. Stan. Yeah. Stan. <laughs> you, better, you, better, you, you better hope they read fast, I guess. Right? <laughs> um, but that third that panel after that is pretty cool. I like this Iron Man design. I mean, I'm glad they kept updating it and ultimately red and gold is like the iconic look. But it's kind of cool to have these this old version. That will mm-hmm. last. I don't know. Does it is it gone by next issue or? It's the same shape, different color. He he paints so, the gray metal with a gold plate. So this is the only gray Iron Man until flashbacks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I think it's cool. Um, and he says, "What is it?" Um, I wrote something down about a magnetic turbo insulator, but I don't know where that was. So never mind. Oh gosh, who knows. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, on the next oh, right page, here. page eleven. Yeah, where he that—that's where he plugs the transistor into his magnet to get rid of all the weapons. Why not just use the word electromagnet? Because that's actually a word. I'll just reverse the charge on this electromagnet instead of this magnetic turbo insulator. So this again is where it's all complicated. Like, why is that magnet even free, and why does he have to manually put the transistor in it? You know, why not just have all that incorporated into his body somehow? Right. Just hold your hand up and do it. So. Oh, you know, he might be doing – Stanley might be uh, tying into the spy genre mm. of James Bond having all the cool gadgets. You know, I think this is the time around when Dr. No came out, isn't it? Oh, we're actually yeah, – it had to be around now, but Dr. No might not even be out quite yet. Because I remember that Dr. No and Dr. Who were being worked on at the same time. Oh, 63? Uh, yeah, there's a story about – no, it's a 1962 British spy film. So okay. it's definitely out by now. Um, and 5th of October is when it was released. 5th of October is when it released. December 10th is when this came out. So they were definitely around the time of this being written and drawn that that movie came out. Cut to Marvels and Alex Ross using Timothy Dalton as obviously the model for Tony Stark. So there we go. Uh, uh, Tony Stark becomes James Bond becomes Tony Stark. It's all full circle. It's all full circle. So... Uh, He's got a little saw on his finger. That's kind of okay. Again, I kind of wonder why not just punch the door down. Mm-hmm. But it's like he just wants to be gadget guy, I guess, in this first issue. He really is just gadget guy. But then we get to an interesting part because Wong Chu shoves the filing cabinet down on on, on Iron Man. Uh-huh. And Iron Man has having trouble lifting it. But Wong well, Chu is just able to slide it out of his office to the stairs. Well, so here's my wonder about that. Sliding versus lifting off your face might be different. Also, okay. it, it's a file cabinet full of rocks, so pushing down the stairs is easier than pushing off. Um, but he also just picked up Wong Chu and threw him around like a cartoon character, and Wong Chu must be like 300 pounds. So then the other thing I thought of is it says, I'm free, but it took almost all my electrical power. So he's still dependent on power, and maybe by this point in his like attempt at destroying the village, he's running low, kind of okay. like you know Johnny Storm losing his flame. I was thinking the exact same thing, that the Torch's problems probably informed this a bit. So I bet you all these Iron Man stories are going to be, you know, plagued with like, oh, I'm running out of juice. I can't lift this thing anymore. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Are y'all both going to bed? And then he straight up kills Wong Chu. Just kills him. Just like shoots flammable oil toward the ammunition thing to make a a, a fuse line and then Uh shoots the fuse line. So let me ask you about this then as a Superman fan. 
mm-hmm. and everybody always is like, oh, you, sh-, you know, Man of Steel was very controversial, and even Batman versus Superman was very controversial for Batman going around killing people, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. DC kills people, wah, wah, wah. Iron Man, the first Iron Man, right? First full-on Iron Man scene, he flies down. He shoots two dudes with repulsors who go flying through buildings. Then he, like, locks on target little bullets and, like, takes out people holding hostages. And then he, like, flies away and kills a tank with a little tiny missile that comes out of his arm. And then he blows up an entire village with his super ion blast or whatever. And nobody on the internet ever went, Iron Man doesn't kill. Right. Ever. Ever. That I saw. That I saw. Like, it wasn't a thing anyway. Yeah. And and I know that at some point, well, I don't know, but I'm going to assume at some point Iron Man's going to be like anti-kill, you would think, because he doesn't uh, go around killing his enemies. Well, like, really. I've read a lot of X-Men, and the X-Men have a thing, you know, they, they uh, Storm, you know, yells that Bishop, the X-Men don't kill. It's a mm-hmm. thing. Um, Superman. Well, hi, Wolverine. Yeah, right. Right. Superman in the late 60s, early 70s started to mention that he had a code against killing. Now, mm-hmm. there were plenty of stories where he destroyed and killed and just didn't mention his code against killing. But right. he also, you know, was oftentimes mentioned his code against killing. So right. it's one of those things where they only ever they only don't kill except when they do. But as far right. as Iron Man, he's a weapons man. Right. He makes weapons for war. If he had a compunction against killing, he should probably be in another. That's like, I don't believe in you know, sex outside of marriage, but I'm going to sell sex toys as my business. You know, it's just like you're catering to all the things you supposedly stand against. Um, so, yeah. Do I think it's a pretty extreme move for him to directly to kill these people in this comic? It's a bit intense. He probably had to think about it for a while afterward. Um, See, my argument is he handled it in the first Iron Man film. He drank a lot. <laughs> my argument isn't that he shouldn't have killed. My argument is why... Do we impose so much weight on DC characters and less on Marvel? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And, um, and is that because DC characters go around touting how moral they are? I mean, even like Batman, Rita's Golden Age, he was killing people just to like as part of a plan. Right. Like it didn't even matter, right? Um, when I started reading Cap, it was the 80s and Mark Grenwald, and there was this issue, number 321, if anybody's interested, where he had to kill a terrorist to stop them from hurting people, right? Yeah, and he didn't have his for. he didn't have his shield. He had a machine gun, and he shot the guy. And then he anal- he agonized over it for issues and issues and issues. And at the time, I was totally into that. Like, oh yeah, because he's a superhero and they don't kill. Everybody knows that. And then as I got older, I was like, uh, no, that story is weird because Captain America must have killed many times by mm-hmm. that point. You know, he was a World War II product. We've read you and I have covered issues where he and. Bucky, like, load up a boat full of <laughs> dynamite and push it towards a boat, you know, and, right. it, and blow it up full of people. So, and he hangs out with Thor. And if he was anti-kill, why would he be friends with Thor? Thor has obviously killed people. So, it's just weird to me, like, that, like you said, any any character, every character has probably killed at some point in some story if you've lived long enough. If you've been a, you know, character that's been around long enough. So, it's just weird to me, like... They get so adamant about like Batman and Superman. And I'm wondering if that's just because they're so like iconic and archetypical or something. But when Captain America grabs a bad guy who was probably a shield agent possessed by Loki, so not even a bad guy, and tosses him off the helicarrier, nobody cares. You know, like it's just weird. 
Yeah, and I don't even know how much of it's DC versus Marvel or how much of it is just particular to Superman and Batman. And I don't mm. know why, of all people, we hold Superman and Batman up to that kind of a pedestal. I um, don't either. You know, I, I, have, I have extolled the virtues of the Superman films of the modern era on other podcasts, so I'm not going to spend time doing that here. But, um, but yeah, the way that story was told... In order to stop Zod and save the Earth, Zod needed to die. And the way this story is told, I mean, an alternative that Tony Stark had in this story was to be was to let Wong Chu get attacked by the like, let everyone get their revenge on him. Let Wong Chu try to live without the virtue of his armed enforcers and see well, how the village people treat him then. There's nothing to say they'd have turned on him though. He would have just caught up with their fleeing and continued doing what he was doing. That's true. And theoretically, the, the, he is an agent of the government's armed Enemy. forces. So well, yeah. whatever so, he's doing, if they try to act against him, there would be repercussions. I mean, it's kind of a slippery slope because if you let Iron Man kill this guy here, then why does he never kill like any of his famous villains that we love to see come back again and again and again, right? Yeah. So why does Captain America not just break Red Skull's neck? Or why does the Mandarin not just have a hole blown through his chest? You know. So... Then you start thinking, well, there's wartime cap and there's superhero cap. And superhero cap is like a cop. And you're supposed to do – you're supposed to take things down. But if you can help it with minimal damage, Mm -hmm. right? And Iron Man and Captain America can help it. So you can argue that. You can also argue here that Iron Man is actually in war because they went to Vietnam, uh, you know, and he was held prisoner, POW. So, yeah, he blew up the, the whole village. But he wouldn't do that if he was on American soil, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean uh, any soldier in the real world soldier goes off to war soldier kills other soldiers in war soldier col- comes home and is bagging groceries at Kroger mm-hmm. and it's usually frowned upon to kill the people at Kroger right so yeah, I guess exactly. I guess context and, and that really does have a big you know impact on things mm-hmm. but I don't I don't have a problem with it in this story um, I don't have a problem with Tony Stark you know entertaining the idea of a permanent end to whatever threats he's facing on a regular mm-hmm. basis at this point in his development. I mean, that can be a thing that happened. It's not what they're going to do, but no. it could have been a thing that happened. Yeah. But let's um, see if, let's see if a uh, Spider-Man kills the chameleon. Let's see if Spider-Man kills the chameleon. Cause that takes us over to amazing Spider-Man number one. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm recapping this total cheat. He, 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 I've only read it 75,000 times. <laughs> so, uh, Fantastic Four. No, that's the backup. Amazing Spider-Man number one. All right, this is a direct sequel to Amazing Fantasy fifteen. And actually, yeah. this this is a good time as any to kind of put forth my working theory about the the behind the scenes on how this comic came about. Okay, uh, I've read very little to actually state this. It's just kind of what seems to make the most sense. To me. Amazing Fantasy was canceled after fifteen issues but not before more stories had been drawn for. Mm. And the first story of Amazing Spider-Man 1 and the first story of Amazing Spider-Man 2 were in the works before that cancel order came down. Um, I think this story was probably done or all but done or really close to being done because it's structured with the chapters and everything just like an anthology book story. I think the Vulture story next issue is probably less in progress but that would have been Amazing Fantasy 17. And then your so, backups were done yeah. to fill in the back pages whenever this was brought back as a feature-length book. 
this almost feels like action comics number one, but backwards. Like, you know, in that story, it just has cuts right to the chase of like this story that's already in progress and we don't know what's going on. And it isn't until later that they reveal what happened leading up to that story. Was that in Superman number one or something Superman like number that? Number one, they sort of like do it an extended cut on Amazon. Uh, yeah. Uh, action one. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like kind of the backwards version of that or something. Like this story was already in progress and then. And then they just use the little version in uh, Amazing Fantasy. So um, to, to, to recap Amazing Spider-Man number one, now there are two stories. So let's take it one at a time. First story, um, Peter Parker, it's been some time. He is really mad at his Spider-Man costume um, because... Because <laughs> it killed Uncle Ben. Because yeah. it killed Uncle Ben. Good recap. And he walks downstairs and sees that Aunt May is trying to hold off a landlord. We get a recap of the origin story completely forgetting to mention that it's peter parker's fault that uncle ben is dead whoops um, and he goes to aunt may asks her about the money Aunt may tells him not to worry he goes out and tries to get a job he can't get a job he sees um no he want, he goes to max Schiffman, his agent mm-hmm. yep and he wants to get paid the guy's like well okay i, I gotta pay you um, but I can't do it in cash. I'll have to write a check. Who should I make it out to? The guy is, I make it out to Spider-Man. And Max is like, okay, good luck with that. He takes it to a bank and the, the bank clerk's like, um, yeah, Spider-Man's not a name. <laughs> I can't just cash a check made out to Spider-Man. Anyone can be Spider-Man. Uh, so he still doesn't have any money. He's working and has no money. So he tries to get a job, doesn't work. And then he tries to go do some more um showmanship work and max won't hire him because a new publishing personality a new tv editorial magazine newspaper all the different media outlets personality voice has been coming out against spider-man and that is j jonah jameson who believes that spider-man's antics will be copied by children and he's very dangerous and that we should be looking at actual heroes like his son john jameson the astronaut and so um peter's pissed he can't he can't work he can't uh, go back and do shows because everyone's stirred up against him he can't get a job doing regular stuff because he's not old enough his aunt may is hawking her jewelry in order to pay the rent and he's just full of despair part two john jameson is going up into an orbital flight and peter is there watching the blast off Uh, Everything seems to go without a hitch, but then there's an alarm that, um, you know, the the rocket goes up into space, all of the tanks disconnected, and we're down to the capsule itself, which is in space going into orbit. Um, But the forward guidance capsule on the, I'm sorry, the forward guidance package on the capsule goes faulty, and he begins spiraling down to the planet. Um, Somehow, it's not really clear, Peter overhears this problem goes home, grabs his spider suit, goes back to the military base, takes the Ford guidance package, um, goes to some sort of Air Force compound, webs a guy up, says, hey, fly a plane for me. We got to go after that capsule. The plane goes out to the capsule. He shoots his web out to the capsule, starts pulling himself up hand over hand. Will I reach the capsule in time? End of part two. Part three. Yes, he reaches the capsule on time. He plugs in the... uh, (laughs) Uh, package, uh, everything lights, all the red lights go off. John Jameson uh, releases the chute. The capsule lands safely. 
And Peter's like, Foof, I bet even Jonah Jameson's going to have good things to say about me now since I just saved his son. And turns out, no, Jameson has even worse things to say about Spider Man for illegally commandeering a plane, probably rigged the whole thing up just to get publicity. And he demands that the law enforcement agencies issue a warrant for Spider-Man's arrest. And sure enough, in the newspaper, it talks about how the FBI are now on the lookout for Spider-Man. So Peter's entire life is in shambles, and even being Spider-Man is getting him in trouble. What a bummer of an ending. It's a major bummer. It feels like very little time has passed between this issue and last. I would say legit none. Yeah. This is kind of like the first and second Hulk, you know? They're just continuing along. Right. Um, I don't know that I've read this before. I thought I had. I've certainly seen the cover a billion times. But, yeah, I guess I haven't. Because I don't remember anything about a rocket story. (laughs) It's kind of weird. It feels a little bit incongruous with, like, the rest of early Spider-Man. When you get... Like, even the back half of this issue is the chameleon. You get the vulture, and you get Dr. Octopus, you get Sandman, and you have the rocket story with John Jay. To to paraphrase Tony Stark, this seems like a little above his pay grade, you know? (laughs) Like, it's just a weird, oh, we have a rocket problem. Well, I'm Spider-Man. I'll take care of that. It's like, eh, maybe somebody else who can, like, fly or something can do that. And that's actually one of the few things that I kind of have a problem with in this story is... We don't see the mental process of Peter Parker deciding to save them. Mm-hmm. It's just like assumed being the superhero, he's going to save this guy. We see him grabbing his suit. There's only one person who can save John Jameson, and that is Spider Man. That's pretty much the entirety of his motivation. Right. And I would have liked to see it because this is his second time doing something heroic with the suit, and the first time was ever he was avenging Uncle Ben. Yeah. Which, like you pointed out, and I didn't even notice, that they kind of just gloss over that whole motivation. Yeah. So there's one – they do say, if you understand the context, they say, but while I was busy showing off, an armed burglar fired and killed my uncle. So you go, okay, that's the part he's talking about. But if you've never read Amazing Fantasy 15, that could mean like he just wasn't home. Yeah. And it explains why he's mad at his Spider-Man suit because he was out being Spider-Man instead of at home getting shot by a burglar. Uncle Ben is dead, and because I all because I was too late to save him. That doesn't mean you know you let the guy go that ended up killing him. Which, by the way, this is uh, I don't know how many times we ever get to see that scene. It always seems like something that we never see the the part where Uncle Ben actually gets shot. Yeah, um, it's always just something that happened while Peter was away, and when he comes home, the police are already there, and Aunt May's already crying. Uncle Ben's dead, but in this flashback, we actually do get to see in a kind of awkwardly drawn way, like. The, the bad guy, Joe Chill, whatever his real name is, like shooting the gun and Aunt May standing behind him going, good gracious. His first name is The. His last the? name is Burglar. The Burglar? Really? Yeah. They never expand upon this guy ever? I, I don't think I've ever heard his name given. Isn't he become Sandman? I just yeah. made that up. <laughs> um. So, yeah. Very little time has passed. He, he – or – if you want to say time has passed, maybe whatever savings they had, they've gone through. But uh-huh. they need money, and he can't get a job. It feels like the idea of a part-time working student who's in high school just didn't seem to exist in 1962. I don't. Well, and I don't know, like if a part-time student could carry the mortgage either. I don't know what income elderly Aunt May has, but she clearly doesn't have a job either. Right. So did Uncle Ben just like 
have a life insurance policy, hopefully, or something. I don't know. I don't know what they're living off of. Yeah, well, it seems like they only have short-term funds available, that they're in serious, dire straits of really bad things happening. If they don't mm-hmm. I love this scene where, like, he's complaining that Aunt May has to pawn her jewelry. Mm-hmm. I'm maybe jumping a little bit here, but on page six, and he's like, she's doing it all for me. But then, like, it shows a picture of her really happy holding money. Like, I I feel like maybe she's not doing it for him, and she's always wanted to hawk that stuff. And she's like, I'm in the money. I'm going to go to the races. Right. I hear that whippersnapper long hair is going to win in the whatever. Go secretariat. Right. Seabiscuit's going to pull it in. Um so There's that no is problem. always going to, huh? Go ahead. That is always going to be a problem for a guy who's very adamant about never revealing his secret identity. Uh, is things like cashing a check made out to Spider Man, or, <laughs> or any sort of credibility whatsoever. If he ever had to like go to court, or I don't know, pretty much do anything, because you can't just say I'm Spider Man. Look and climb climb up a wall, because other people in the, this world can do that. Well, my Spider-Man read-through, which has been you know very slowly progressing for years now, is currently at the 30th anniversary. And they do a story that brings in the agent and sort of follows up on this era from 30 years later. Not 30 years later in story time, but 30 years later in our time. And mm-hmm. um, there, there's a bit – there's it's a Mysterio story. And so this sort of like, you know, pulling the wool over Spider-Man's eyes. But there's a bit where, like, it acts like he's been working for Max all this time. Mm-hmm. And um, – Max says that they solved this problem by turning Spider-Man into a corporation. And I thought the, about that. If the title of Spider-Man is the name of a business, then various people within that business can be assigned the right to cash checks for the business. Right, but not Peter Parker, unless he wants to associate himself with that business, which I yeah. guess he could. He could. He could say like he's just a part owner of Spider-Man Incorporated, but then they wouldn't know which one is actually Spider-Man maybe. You could do that, but that's right. still kind of risky on his part. It's just an idea of a, of a way that they 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 have addressed oh. different possible things that, that make this work. Yeah, that doesn't I work for him now, right now though. No. Um, other things. It's interesting that there's no flash in this issue. Oh really? Was there a flash in Amazing Fantasy 15, or was he just a generic bully? He was named Flash. Okay. Um, I don't remember that. Hey Sally, you want to go to the movie this weekend? Uh, for the umpteenth time, Mr. Parker, just not my type. Not when there are f- dreamboats like Flash Thompson around. I admire your good taste, doll. Get lost, bookworm. Yeah, and then he has the exact same pose as this other guy who's got an O on his chest. Yeah. And has, and has black hair and might as well be Flash Thompson. Might as well be Flash. Maybe they just miscolored him. And the blonde there is not named, but of course that's going to end up becoming Liz Allen. Um, uh, would, would be love interest. Of Peter. Okay. He's got a lot of those. Yeah, for such an introverted, socially Dork. awkward nerd. Yeah. Um, so. J. Jonah Jameson? Yeah. Explain to me his hate on. Um. See, you can't. No one really ever talks about why he hates Spider-Man so much, do they? Well, okay, so I want to talk about that. But if, I feel like it's going to lead into something else I want to get into with this issue. Okay. But before, so before that, a different aspect of J. Jonah Jameson is something that you pointed out to me recently, and that is that he is very much modeled after Stan Lee uh-huh. uh, as far as his personality. That evidently, Stan was a bit of a bit of a thunderbolt, to, to, mm-hmm. to coin a, a nickname, um, around the Marvel bullpen. And that Jonah Jameson is kind of the same personality. Right. They both have the same mustache, and at so, the time, so, anyway. 
Yeah, so now whenever I read Jonah Jameson, it's to be like, you know, we cannot allow that mass menace to take the law into our own hands. It's like, we cannot allow that mass menace to take the law into his own hands. He's a <laughs> right. bad influence on our youngster. Hey, true believers. Children may try to imitate his fantastic feats. Excelsior. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that's his, that's his motivation. I forgot he said that. I, was, now. <laughs> I, was, I forgot he said anything in this issue about his motivation, but there's a, there's a motivation, I guess. He's like the, uh, the guy who hated comics and you know was responsible for the Comics Code Authority, I guess. You're right. He very much is Dr. Wortham as far as Spider-Man goes. He's just like, you know, it's going to, oh, that's, oh, yeah, he's, he's imitating Dr. Wortham. Yeah. So maybe that's that exactly was the, what he's doing. Maybe that's, I mean, because in the future, he'll like some superheroes and hate others. So obviously always Spider-Man. Maybe because Spider-Man is a spider and he doesn't like spiders. So then he goes on to say that instead of Spider-Man, instead of this dangerous costumed superhero that's going to turn your kids gay, um, <laughs> the youth of this nation must learn to respect real heroes, men such as my son, John Jameson, the test pilot, not selfish freaks such as Spider-Man, a masked menace who refuses to even let us know his true identity. Yeah. So, um, so this got me going down a thought process. Can I tell a story? Can I do, can I do a little spiel here? Of course. Okay. So at this point in the universe, Spider-Man is a TV sensation. He is, he is David Copperfield. You know, mm-hmm. he's someone who does fantastic things on screen. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he's so amazing. And Jameson is writing against him. So, like, you yeah, was trying to figure out what his motivation would. Why would he be coming out against Spider-Man specifically so strongly? And actually, I was, I was remembering hearing that, like, David Copperfield was, was like, possessed by demons. I, I'm really certain I remember hearing that in my, like, religious circles as a kid. Um mm-hmm. So he emphasizes his son, John Jameson, the test pilot, the astronaut, and the stories, of course, about his flight. That got me thinking, where was the space program in 1960? What was going on there? Right. So this issue was published in December of 1962, but it was set to come out in Amazing Fantasy 16, which would have been July 19th. So I'm looking up, you know, space program timeline 1962, and I get a... um, a series of, of events, and it mentions um, the United States' first manned orbital flight from John Glenn was that year. I think, oh, okay, that's cool. And then I remember, wait a second, my dad, uh, my, my wife's father, my father-in-law, but I call him my dad, was a big space nerd when mm-hmm. he was a kid. So I call him and I thought, like, hey, dad, what was what was the, the, the cultural zeitgeist about astronauts in space in 1962, after the time that John Glenn did his orbital flight. And he's like, okay, football was not as big a thing in the early 60s as it is now. You're, uh, and, and for a lot of people, kids especially, 8 to 12-year-olds, the, the astronauts, they were our national heroes. Yeah. So in a way, Jonah Jameson is saying, forget Spider-Man. You have all these real heroes to look at. These these people who are doing amazing, dangerous things. One of them happens to be my son. Uh-huh, right. So I'm like, okay, cool. So then I turn the page as I'm looking through this uh, comic. And I see that at the beginning of part two, it describes Peter as going to watch the orbital flight of John Jameson. I'm like, wait a second. Wait a second. John Glenn did an orbital flight in 1962. And John Jameson is doing an orbital flight in 19. 19- yeah. So I call my dad again. I say, Dad, how many orbital flights were there? 
is like, well, you got to understand that like our space program was designed to accomplish certain objectives. Every single time we sent a rocket or a person up into space, it was for a particular reason. And John Glenn was to catch us up to the Russians already having put a man in space. We wanted mm-hmm. to check that box. So John Glenn's orbital flight was America say, we can put a man in orbit just like anybody else. And that was the purpose of that launch. So other things that might have done orbit, gone into orbit, were for other purposes. John Glenn's orbital flight was the man going into orbit flight. Like, okay. Okay. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this was 1962. It was published in July. It would have been being written in like May or April. And the flight happened in February. And so I'm thinking in my head that Steve Ditko is doing a riff on John Glenn's orbital flight, like doing a nod, like doing an homage. Well, it was published in December, wasn't it? It was published in December, but like that was after months of delays. It was supposed to come out in the summer, if my working theory is correct. Oh, I see. Yeah. Since it was supposed to hit in the summer, he would have been working on it in late spring. This thing happened in February, but then I kept going. Mm -hmm. I looked up a picture of John Glenn in 1962. And it shows him in his astronaut outfit. And you look mm-hmm. at John Jameson in his astronaut outfit, whenever uh, Jonah's saying, you know, make the world as proud of you, son, as proud as I am today. Yeah. And the detailing of the suit is the same. There's like this little like bandolier cord that goes diagonally across the front of him. It looks like John Glenn. And I'm thinking, wow. it's not just an homage to John Glenn. It is John Glenn. Like Steve Ditko is doing the story of John Glenn on, in Spider-Man. And then it doesn't stop. Because the Wikipedia entry for the flight of John Glenn into space says that he boarded the rocket at 11.30 a.m. after a 90-minute delay because of a faulty forward guidance package wow. in the capsule. And So this, this is like the alternate reality version where they didn't delay. Right! This is... This is the universe where they didn't delay John Glenn's flight and Spider-Man had to save him. And I'm thinking if I were an eight to 12 year old child in July, 1962, reading this comic, I probably would have immediately recognized exactly what story was being. Totally. Maybe not so much by December because, you know, you don't have as much repeats of media in the sixties like you do now. Um, well, but I mean, if and, that was their heroes, and it's not like they had the internet or influx of media we have now, so that could have lasted long enough to know who the heck they were trying to be in this book. But I've looked online. I have never seen nor heard of that connection made before. And I feel like now that I've seen it, it's like really super obvious. Like I'm not even, I'm not even saying Steve Ditko was probably doing this. I am saying Amazing Spider-Man number one is Steve Ditko's riff directly taking the story from the headline. Spider-Man. You know what's interesting is page seven, like you were talking about, where it's uh, the first part of part two. That yeah. second panel actually looks like he's trying to draw a likeness to me. Yeah, that's the one I was talking Yeah, that's where it has like the, uh, the little strap going across the front. Yeah. It's not like just a regular Steve Ditko character. It's like he had a photograph out and he's like, okay, this is how you draw the nose. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it just looks like he's straight up trying to copy a real person. There's not a whole lot of like facial detail there to make him look like distinct. But if someone said, hey, look, here's a photograph of John Glenn. 
hey, look, here's somebody drawing John Glenn in a comic book. I would have said, yep, that's him. Yep. And I that's sent crazy. a couple pictures in our in our Facebook chat. Maybe we can put those in the uh, in the visuals for the website. Yeah, absolutely. Show notes. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Did you look up whether his dad was named J. Jonah Glenn? <laughs> I actually did, and he is not. <laughs> Bummer, because uh, that would have been awesome. <laughs> and and very very little is online about how John Glenn later became a werewolf. Um, yeah, they don't really talk yeah, about that in the news yeah. very much. Well, they don't want to tear down their heroes, you know. Right, but yeah, it's cool. I, it's cool that uh, Jay Jonah. No, I'm sorry, not Jay Jonah. John Jameson is in the first issue because I didn't know he was that old of a character. Right. I thought it was more of like an add-on later. He kind of goes away a bit and then comes back sporadically. Um, I knew him in the '90s as like working for like paramilitary police forces, like Code Blue and stuff like that. I, I first discovered him as a pilot for the Avengers. Oh, so okay, there's he, that too. He did the Quinjet piloting for a little while. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. I've come but, across uh, those stories, but it's not part of any Avengers era that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I uh, like I said, this is just kind of a wonky. I like the introduction of J. Jonah Jameson. I like the introduction of you know Peter Parker being broke and having problems and not being able to cash check. That's checks and or make money and everybody hating him. All that stuff is cool. But then there's just like these pages of him like renting a p- airplane so he can go stop a rocket. And that's just a little weird. Well, not to, not to totally ruin this forever, but that webbing up of the military guy, mm-hmm. that's a paste pot Pete story beat from that last issue we read. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Pete did the exact same thing. And I am waiting for um, the adventures of Pete and Pete to happen in the Marvel universe, where it's Peter Parker and Pace Pot Pete running around together. Just making stuff sticky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded wrong. Okay. I feel like the um, Air Force just turning the guidance package over to Spider-Man, a masked TV personality, is extremely unlikely. I mean, I know they have nothing else they can do with it, but just like saying, oh, well, I can't do anything. So here, random stranger in uh, pajamas. Yeah. I mean, at least he 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 encountered them by climbing up the building and going through the window. So in that sense, they could see that he was somewhat legit. But yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, if there's nothing else you can do, yeah, what could they do? And it seemed, like, it seemed like, like he was crashing a long time. He was. Well, he was falling from space. Okay. And How long was, does that take? I don't know. I it takes a long time to get up there. I know that. Yeah. But he was also going very, he was going very horizontal. So like he was in orbit. So he was going tangential to the planet, but then slowly getting closer and closer to the planet. Mm. That makes um, sense. I guess. Steve Ditko really likes the multi-part format. He really takes advantage of it, even to the point of kind of ridiculousness. Like on page 11 at the bottom, there's a really big cliffhanger. The capsule is losing altitude dangerously. Can I attach the missing unit in time? Turn the page part three. What a lucky break. It fit in places smooth as silk. <laughs> yeah. Not much drama there, I guess. Huh? Yeah. It's right. actually a really short part three, too. It's only yeah, three part pages. Yeah, three is super short. Yeah. But like I said, when we're talking about Amazing Fantasy 15, uh, or maybe some other comics, three-page stories were part of the format in those books. Mm. Yeah. Like, you had, you, had, you had a set order of story length in some of the issues I've read. They, the guy kind of kept the same format. In the middle of the book, there was a three-page story. Weird. I like I like Peter's uh, shocked expression that nothing went right. Mm-hmm. He's so ha- he's so happy prior, 
And then it's like, oh, no, actually, they want to prosecute and arrest me. And that makes me wonder, like, did he ever consider the idea of being like Cockroach Man next time he went out? <laughs> like, just make Spider-Man disappear. It's your invention. You don't have to be Spider-Man. You could put on a different mask. I mean, I know that'd be a bad marketing decision for Marvel, but sometimes these superheroes, I've always wondered, like, has there ever been a superhero who's been more than one superhero at the same time? Why not? Besides Hank Pym? No, no not, I don't mean, like, changing ideas, but, like, purposely throwing people off your trail by being, like, some guy by day and another guy by night, and then it's like, what? It's the same guy? You know, that was kind of a cool idea. Yeah, that does seem like it'd be a cool idea. Um, it reminds me of the Dial Age for Hero, where mm. you like be a different, you would be a different hero. You'd be one or, hero in the afternoon, go home, and be another hero that night. And the world thinks it's multiple superheroes, but it's all him. Or Ben Ten, I guess, different yeah. characters. But yeah, like what if you had, what if you were Superman, right? And you had Superman's powers. You could be the Dark Avenger Batman at night who acts like he doesn't have any powers, but obviously is bulletproof and stuff. And then during the day, you could be the beacon of, you know, hope and liberty and stuff. And no one would put two and two together. You're the same person. Well, shall we move on to Spider-Man versus the Chameleon? Yeah, his first supervillain, sort his of. His first masked villain. <laughs> his first not <laughs> super <laughs> yet. Because he wears masks. Yeah. Okay, so extra bonus extra. In this same amazing tale, you'll meet America's most famous, most colorful group of super adventurers... The Fantastic Four. All right. So who? The who? Who? Never heard of him. So Peter Palmer is sitting in his home trying to figure out what to do. (laughs) Yes, I noticed that too. (laughs) Also, another reason why I think this was the the first story they did after the break. The first story uh, because Stanley couldn't remember the kid's name. (laughs) Or the letterer did it. One of the two. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I know a way to make some money. I'm going to go join the Fantastic Four. So he walks over to the building. He's like, oh, I can't use the elevator because you need the special beam. Uh, he pries open the doors with the spider strength. Oh, no. The elevator car is suspended above me. I can't I can't get past it to get up there. Okay, I might as well go outside and climb to the building next to the building and use the power lines to sort of, you know, scale over there. And I'll just go in the window on one of these upper floors and the Fantastic Four sitting inside, you know, eating their Cheerios and reading comics and whatever. And Reed's like, Gurk. oh no, it's an alarm. Let's, you know, use some really overpriced uh, barriers to try to stop Spider-Man. Oh no, Spider-Man, don't, don't destroy our overpriced barriers. And Spider-Man comes in and destroys the overpriced barriers. And, um, they start That's attacking job. him. And, right. They start attacking him and, and, and Reed is like, we don't have to fight. And Spider- Peter Spider-Man's like, Who's fighting? I'm just showing you what I can do. Yeah, you know, I, I should be part of your team, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm worth your your top pay. And uh, things like fellow's got rocks in his head, and um, which I think is the first deliberate rock joke from the thing. <laughs> and Reed's like, "Yeah, we don't we don't pay anyone to work for us." And Johnny Storm is like, "Tell me about it." Sheesh. So Peter's like, "Fine, whatever. I'm leaving." And they're like. By the way, aren't you wanted by the police? <laughs> and Peter's like, you know, screw you guys. I'm going home. So he goes home. And meanwhile, uh, Spider-Man goes into a military installation and webs up a guy and steals some plans. I don't know what the plans are for, but gosh, they're plans. Uh, and then he runs out and somewhere else he changes out of his Spider-Man suit and changes into... Wait, is it a Spider-Man thing yet or is it a Spider-Man thing later? He... 
is doing some like old man scientist thing first. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I don't not know getting. If he's that's not. Very... I'm, I'm convinced. Using my plot points, he's not stealing the plans yet. He's just like changing disguises and getting secret stuff out of labs, and he goes back to his base, and he's the chameleon. He's a faceless dude with goggles, mm-hmm. um, but he's actually wearing a mask, and you just never see his face. Um, he is determined to do a theft of some military plans and to frame Spider-Man for it. So he decides to communicate with Spider-Man using his Spider-Sense radio frequency antenna thing. So he sends right. a Spider-Sense signal to Spider-Man's Spider-Sense, and there's like, ooh, I'm getting a message on my Spider-Sense. And the community's like, meet me at this building at such and such time. It'll be very profitable for you. And Peter's like, ooh, profitable. I want money. I'm going to go do that. So Spider-Man goes to the uh, the building, and while he's approaching the chameleon, this is where I was talking about earlier, dressed as Spider-Man, steals some plans, changes faces as he's escaping, gets to the roof, hops in a helicopter, flies away just as Spider-Man's arriving. Police come outside. They see Spider-Man. They're like, hey, where are those plans you just stole? And Spider-Man's like, duff, you say? And he's like, oh, that helicopter, I was framed. Okay, it makes sense now. Goes after the helicopter, fights the chameleon, um, and they see like a communist sub out in the bay because the commie bastards are part of the story. Um, He takes the chameleon back to the building, says, hey, cops, see, it's the chameleon. He's wearing his Spider-Man costume. And um, he was like, ha ha, I can get away. And I'm going to dress like a policeman in the dark. And um, something, something happens. Spider-Man tries, to, Spider-Man tries to get him, but he's out of webbing and his web shooters. Mm-hmm. And uh, he fights his way through the dark and accidentally pulls the, tears the clothing of the police officer that is actually the chameleon, runs away because people think he's that he's bad and they're going to capture him, hates life, hates himself because everything he does to Spider-Man turns out wrong. Meanwhile, the chameleon gets caught because his clothes are torn and his Spider-Man suit is still on underneath. Um, cop suit. So I kind of jumbled some things there, but that's basically the gist. And we end on the note saying, with the Fantastic Four saying, I wonder if Spider-Man will level turn against humanity. Just like they wondered about the thing, and just like they wondered about um, the torch and stuff. Yeah. Oh, man, so, this was a dense story. Yeah. And it's, I, it's, I feel like they could have got rid of Rocket Story and just stretched this one out a little bit. Right. Maybe. It's actually a really simple plot structure. But it's really packed. Like every every page is nine panels. Yeah, you don't feel like it's as simple as it really is. With just you know, Chameleon tries to steal stuff. He frames Spider Man. Spider Man captures him, brings him back. Chameleon pulls the last trick. Spider Man is away sad. Yeah, but there's also this Fantastic Four bit in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's like I think this is so far. I've been enjoying Steve Ditko's art, but I feel like this story I don't enjoy it that much. And I think a lot of it has to do with not him so much as Stan just putting so much that he has to accomplish in each page. Right. That it's just little tiny panels and lots happening and not that good. Um, this feels more like a Spider-Man story. Oh yeah. First one did. Way better. Way better. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as it was fun to not have Jack Kirby on a couple books we covered, I really miss Jack Kirby when someone else is drawing the Fantastic Four. <laughs> You're not the only one. That, that, that's is, sort of the general reaction to this story. And, and at the wow. time, yeah. was, I want to see Jack Kirby do this. Steve Ditko's Fantastic Four is ugh. His Reed Richards is horrible. 
Now, so I was thinking horrible. about this as I was reading it. Does he do the next stretch thing in this? Multiple times. Yeah. The, f- the first panel is a big, long neck stretch. And then he does this weird, like, Spider-Man webs him, so he moves his hands through the webs or something, and it looks so bizarre. Which is exactly how I'd expect Steve Ditko's Fantastic Four to be. Yeah. I would expect Steve Ditko's Fantastic Four to be bizarre and kind of weird and strange and creepy. And, and Yeah, and then there's this another... It, panel where he's like this big wall that he's trying to make when he's trying to get spider-man to stop and his neck Mm -hmm. is stretched again and the thing looks weird and sue looks weird and johnny has a face which i don't think we've seen from kirby yet right really and but he's putting a full-on face on johnny and it looks kind of weird it's just a very it's funny it's funny that we haven't seen anybody else draw the fantastic four yet at this point in history and this is my first fantastic four oh wow yeah, these are the comics that I had as a kid. So this issue, and then when they come back in issue eight, and then the torch shows up a lot in you know in Amazing Spider-Man during the Ditko run. He's kind of a supporting character for a while. So uh, yeah, um, the, but yeah, the, the Fantastic Four do definitely look weird. I also Still- as as he's approaching the Fantastic Four, we get the one panel of the crowds reacting to Spider-Man, uh-huh. and I love that. Oh yeah, I mean it's a cool scene. Except for them looking weird. I like the whole idea of him going to ask them for a job. And, of course, in Marvel fashion. Actually, that picture, of that panel of him jumping through the window is amazing. When it's just Spider-Man. Yeah. That's a good shot. But uh, And I guess if you're a Spider-Man fan, it's fun to see him take on the entire Fantastic Four and survive. And mm-hmm. actually look like he's doing a good job. Like he could actually beat them. Or at least it was a stalemate. Um, yeah. It was cool. I think I think it would have benefited more from uh, you know again just having this be the one story. I can I, I like the scene of the way that we meet the Fantastic Four. They're just kind of hanging out, and yeah. um, the torch has just gone through setting what the thing is reading on fire. <laughs> right, that's good stuff. And the next page, he's reading something else, and he's like, "Because he's a teen ball, teenage cornball show off, just yeah. like the torch." Trying to get a rise out of Johnny, and Johnny just shakes his head, and you know. And then, like back to reading, when Spider-Man leaves, Sue's like, "Too bad he left suddenly. Perhaps we could have helped him." And things like, "Ah, uh, we got enough problem kids to worry about." Right. We know who he's talking about. Um, I think that if Reed is going to use thousands of dollars to create defensive devices, he should be more copacetic with his defenses. The defensive devices being attacked. Yeah, especially the Fantastic Four, who seem to want to ruin millions of dollars worth of stuff every issue for no reason. Right. He, he should be used to that by now. If it wasn't Spider-Man, it was going to be them. And speaking of it being Spider-Man, it's worth pointing out that Spider-Man, you know, like we have talked about the first story, he's hardly a superhero at this point. From the Fantastic yeah. Four perspective, this is a TV sensation. This is a, a, a wrestling guy who's been on the Ed Sullivan show doing superhero tricks. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've heard about him saving the astronaut recently. Maybe not. Um, and now he's showed up in their place fighting them, wanting to join the team. It's just I'll kind tell of you, weird I'll tell you one perspective. Th- one thing he didn't do, he didn't rip the elevator doors off and pull the elevator down and climb up the cables like the thing did. Yeah, the thing just did that. He just wrecked this door. Yeah, so they fixed that and they're fine. But anyway, so the chameleon, mm-hmm. you could tell me if I'm wrong about this, but doesn't he become a little more super tastical eventually than just like a guy who puts masks on his head. He goes through phases. Um, he's always a master of disguise. He does go through a thing where like he has this like cosmic device that just changes appearance. So that's what, um, that's, 
That's the chameleon I think of is like, I don't know where, why or where I think of this. Maybe the cartoon in the 90s or something. But like he has like a white face, kind of red skully white face. Mm-hmm. And, but he can turn just magically turn into anybody. So it's not a bunch of masks in his prop room. Right. Um, he's he's kind of yeah, like Pacebot Pete and the, and the acrobat in that way. Like he's going to get upgraded. Yeah. Yeah, he does go through phases and develops. Well, also, he doesn't really get used as much as I feel like he should. Uh, you know, from here to the 90s, there's probably like five chameleons. Okay. So it's not a whole lot of usage. So if you know him, you probably know him from cartoons. And probably. I haven't watched that 90s cartoon series very much to know. You know, I'm not he, sure if that's what it was. I could just picture him in my head, but I'm not sure from where. He just has like a white face and mm-hmm. eyeballs or something. But uh, there's a, there's like a it, really classic uh, cover from the mid to late 80s of um, him with a Spider-Man face on, but he has the slits in his eyes. Oh, yeah. He knows the, yeah. Todd he knows the chameleon, but yeah, Todd McFarlane. Yeah. So speaking of that, so that's the thing about these masks. This is such a uh, Mission Impossible thing where they just you you put a mask on and you look exactly like the real person. Um, yeah, you pull the mask off. You have the Batman cowl underneath. But he he at one point in the story puts a mask on over a Spider Man mask. Yup. <laughs> and so you would think the guy he's talking to would go, "Hey, how come every time you open your mouth, there's like red and webs and stuff inside your face? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like that's weird." It How come your eyes me, are white? Do you do you watch Game of Thrones? Uh, I've seen like a few seasons. I haven't watched it lately. It reminds me of the redheaded guy from the uh, the uh, a girl is no one. The whole thing that uh, oh crap! I haven't watched it in so long. I've forgotten her name. But the younger Arya, the whole thing uh-huh. that Arya goes through of trying to become no one, trying to become the, the worshiping the faceless god. They have all those faces in there. And there's this part where they're just pulling off one face after another, and it's face after face after face after face. I feel like the chameleon is. I feel like a spy is no one should be uh, the title of this story. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the chameleon sends out a message to him. He says, Spider-Man make a perfect fall guy for me. And it's like, you know, Spider-Man is a nobody. He's, he's basically framing Justin Bieber with a spider gimmick and an FBI warrant. Yeah. It's, it's just... Seems kind of strange, but that's okay. And interestingly, um, he knows about the spider sense. He does know about the spider sense. He's probably been reading Henry Pym's Shh. papers. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those things. Kind of like I always wonder who knows about that and who doesn't know about that. Because if I were Spider-Man, I wouldn't let people know about that. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I could help it. Because that's just a, something I should play close to my vest. And I don't need people using that against me in any sort of way. Like throwing some crazy supersonic thing at me that overloads my spider sense or something like that same with like daredevil i don't want them to know i'm blind and i have super awesome senses let's just let them think i'm an awesome ninja guy right right ninja guys Uh, are awesome anyway yeah because if they know i have super hearing then batman's gonna throw a supersonic grenade at me and make my ears bleed and i'm gonna fall over and be useless so i you know obviously this is just 1962 book and they kind of slipped up and somehow chameleon magically knows that spider-man has a spider sense but be interesting to see like how many other characters know that in the future. Right. It is something I think that kind of goes back and forth in yeah. the, uh, in the usage. But, um, I do kind of hate that he sends a signal to the spider sense. I mean, we've mm-hmm. already established that with ants with the Henry Pym mentioned a second ago. So why not spiders? But, um, yeah. we are going to find out way the frickety frackety tic tackety time down the road that the chameleon is Russian. Oh, 
Okay. So whenever the Kami bastards are there in the bay, they're not necessarily his bosses. I mean, they are his bosses, but they're also his countrymen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a thing that happens. I guess we could assume that he's communist at least at this yeah. point. Well, it, I kind of read it as he's just you know working for it, like he's doing a job. Oh, oh well, that could be too. Yeah, he doesn't really have any any strong patriotism. He's more after the money, and he gets hired to you know steal some plans for some people. But um, but all that stuff is fun. That whole page where he's getting away on the sub, and Spider Man does the you know two webs on a pole and stretch and oh, yeah. f- fling himself like a, uh, you know, what do you call those things? Uh, <sighs> catapult. Yeah. A catapult slingshot. A slingshot. That's the word I was looking for. And then he like turns his webs into a parachute and you know, that's cool. Yeah. The whole like pages seven and eight and uh, mainly seven and eight are like this big action movie scene, especially mm-hmm. page eight. You know, it's like there's like, you know, heavy drum music going in the background. Spider-Man gets a speedboat. It's only one panel, but Spider-Man gets a speedboat and <laughs> goes out after the sub and like, Spider-Man. And it's just, it's just. Well, you know, when you're out in the water, there's not a lot you can web to. He webs so the helicopter. You, I guess you need a boat. You do need a boat. What would a god need with a speedboat? Well, Spider-Man used it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we get to page nine, and Spider-Man runs out of web fluid. And I feel like this is one uh, of those things that is treated as a trope of early Spider-Man, mm-hmm. but it really almost never happens. Good. Because I'm kind of tired of the tropes of, you know, like, I lose my flame power, I lose my transistor power, I have to drop my hammer... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it'd be it'd be cool if he doesn't run out of web fluid all the freaking time. I will I will warn you that he forgets to reload before the next issue. Ah, well, that's okay. At least it's continuity. Yeah. And so and, it's it's kind of one as part of my theory about this story being done after next issue's story that it's it's sandwiched in between. So it feeds off of the money problems from issue one or from issue you know the first story and. You know, knowing that he doesn't have webbing in issue two, he's like, oh, I'm running out of it here, and I still don't have it there. And it just kind of it fits in between the two. Um, and my kids can never remember to put their shoes away, so it makes perfect sense to me that a 16-year-old superhero can't remember to refill his cartridges before he goes back out patrolling. I never thought about that, but you're totally right. It's not just yeah. yuck, 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 that's Parker Luck. It's like he's a high schooler who forgets to do crap. Yeah. That is cool. Um, and... I'm kind of out of things to say about this issue. Yeah. I definitely like the second story better. Chameleon's cool. Nice and solid. I liked, I liked the crossover with the FF other than their looks, but it, it was fun to watch them interact. Um, but it's good. Good first issue for the amazing Spider-Man, which will end up going, what, 500 issues or something like that? Uh, well, I don't know. Yeah. It's probably James going again. 800 right now. So, well, that's cheating. I don't know if I buy into those. I don't. I don't know if I buy into those read numbers, especially when they like post their reasoning behind it. Half the time, that doesn't work for me. Like it doesn't yeah. make sense. But well, the, but the yeah. original volume of of Amazing of Amazing Spider-Man goes. At, I I want to say four hundred forty-one before yeah. it's re, restarted. Yeah. Back in the good old day, kids, when every superhero had a solid volume one series that was just going and going and going. Spider-Man had plenty, actually quite a few, but amazing, obviously, the first one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, 
Yeah, I miss those days before they like had to renumber everything all the time. I know it's just a number, but it was just cool. You collected Captain America, that was it. Here's the book. Right. Iron Man, here's the book. Spider-Man, here's the books. But still. <laughs> all four of them. But they were cool books and they usually interacted with one another, which is also cool. Yeah, that is. An, yeah. One of the things about my read-through has been interesting watching how the relationship between the books ebbs and flows yeah. and changes. Yeah. And sometimes they are completely separate. And sometimes they are very codependent It's or interdependent, rather. It's, uh, it's, and it's interesting to watch it change. Um, there's something... And, and you having more of an art feel than I have. There's something that I find ineffable that makes this story feel visually different to the story in the first half and what we get in the um, second issue. I don't know okay. if it's just the fact that the captions are all blurbity lined. I don't know if it's the fact that all of the panels are so tightly packed. Um, I don't know if there's something about... I, I, I don't know what it is, but this story feels... Like, after page 14 of the first story, and then you get the splash page, and then you turn the page, it immediately feels different. I just think it's because it's so much stuff they're trying to cram into it. Because, yeah, nine panels each page. That's as, that's like the maximum amount of panels you can do, pretty much. Every page. Every page has nine panels. So, and also I imagine, you know, I don't know Steve Ditko's history up until this point, but... We've mentioned him here and there doing short stories here and there and anthology books here and there. Like maybe this is his first big full size book that he's supposed to do all by himself. Uh, and he was just feeling the rush or the crunch because it seems a little a little more cartoony than he was doing in, say, like Amazing Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just or, flip it ahead to Amazing Spider-Man 2. And yeah, it, it, the, the panels are more open. The art feels less compacted. Uh, there's very little Peter Parker in this story, which might also be part of why it feels so weird, is that the Peter Parker life is not a part of this story. The only thing we get of Peter is him standing in his room looking at an issue of the Fantastic Four or a magazine about the Fantastic Four or something with a giant spider underneath a dome. On his. And, his, and Peter's face is so small, you can't even see the eyes. His Spider-Man is consistently pretty awesome, even in this story. Yeah. like He's good at making Spider-Man kind of dynamic and fun. Mm-hmm. Except for this thing we t- didn't talk about, a personal message from Spider-Man. Uh, that big splash page that I assume he drew. Maybe he didn't. Uh, I'll have to look that up and see if he drew it or not. But that looks so wonky. It really, really does. Is that the one that's talking about how like we're going to have a letters column here and stuff? Yeah. His neck is like yeah. Captain America thick. His shoulders are super buff. Maybe it's not Ditko. I was totally just going to slam Ditko for this. But I'm going to look up and see who really drew this if we know. I think it's probably some second-rate production person throwing together an image. Yeah, it the, looks so weird. The directions of the face webs are so weird on that. Like, I don't mm-hmm. have it in front of me, but I have seen what you're talking about, and it's, it's his, pretty funny. His, his eyes are two different sizes. I don't know. Yeah, it's just really weird. Well, um, before we go, Mike. Yes. It's the end of the month. Okay. We have so to do it. We have to do ratings. We have to do top and bottom picks for the month of December 1962. Okay. Now we have. Little, go ahead. I was going to give you a little recap, but you can go ahead and do it. Well, I was going to try and do it, but I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right. But we have Journey into Mystery '89, which was what Thor Thug uh, Thatcher. Oh, Thug Thatcher. That's right. Okay. We have Tales to Astonish '41, where he goes to some alternate dimension. We have Fantastic Four crossing over with the Hulk for the first time in FF number twelve. 
Strange Tales, where he fights the acrobat and gets gunned down, sort of. And then we have the two we talked about tonight, right? Tales of Suspense 39 featuring Iron Man for the first time and Amazing Spider-Man number one. Mm-hmm. Yikes. You're going to go first. I'm going to go first? Yeah. Because okay. I have to think about this Bottom pick was a toss-up between Thor, Torch, and Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't choose Thor because there was some cool drama with Thug Thatcher and his wife and Walt Simonson brings that story back. And so even though the story is not great, it has import that's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I really could have chosen Ant-Man, but it was the first Don Heck story. It has the tiny costume and there is some stuff that I like. about. It. So that left the torrid twosome where Johnny Storm gets convinced to leave the Fantastic Four by a yeah. random guy named Zanti who just uses him to break into a bank vault. And they call themselves the Torrid Twosome, like they're having a love affair. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, my bottom pick for this month is Torch. Okay. My top? top pick, the other three books are Iron Man, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man. And I'm sorry, um, it's going to be... It's going to be hard to beat Spider-Man on a regular basis for me. I, I, I'm going to try not to be one note. Yeah. But Spider-Man was my guy. And this S- issue, I really liked it. And the fact that I discovered something which I feel like is new Spider-Man information with the whole John Glenn thing mm-hmm. just like elevated this issue in my head. Okay. So my bottom – God, man. Because I like the Don Heck. So I hate to say, you know – give him a bad vote necessarily. But I also really found tales to astonish 41 to be like a real left turn for that character. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say tales to astonish number 41 is my least favorite, but, but you know, acrobat you're right. Johnny was super dominant, but he is kind of a super dumb character. And I did like the whole getting shot in the arm thing and the fantastic four showing up and like helping him out and stuff. And like you said, Doug Thatcherson or whatever, wasn't that bad. And, and uh, had some fun parts. So, yeah, I'm going to go Tales to Astonish just because that story was so bonkers for Ant-Man. Okay. Um, and then Iron Man's going to be my favorite because ah. uh, Spider-Man was cool, but he had the rocket thing, which was kind of a bummer for a first issue. Mm-hmm. And even the second story, which was good, like we just said like a million times, was really cramped, it seemed like, and kind of drawn weird. Iron Man, it's not really fair to compare maybe because it's just – like one of many stories in that book. So it was shorter, but it was very sweet, very on the point. Uh, the movie pretty much ripped it off exactly. And it's the introduction of a new character who's really fun to read. And so, yeah, tales to suspense, tales of suspense. Number 39 is my favorite. Okay. And oddly, neither one of us talked about fantastic four, number 12, which was the creation of the Marvel universe, but that's pretty much all it had going for it. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't a terrible story, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, so that brings us to the end of a year. Would you like to know where we stand? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, your vote, you were kind of, you were pretty consistent. No, (laughs) no, we were both kind of all over the place. Okay, Um, good. But you did have three votes of Ant-Man as (gasps) your least favorite. I'm so sorry, Hank Pym, but Hey, and, um, I had, Two votes for Ant-Man and two votes for Torch. Okay. That's my least favorite. Wow. I thought I'd have more Torch. That's weird. You only you only put Torch on bottom once. Really? Wow. Yeah. 
And between the two of us, we most chose more than any other single option Ant Man as our least favorite character. Wow. Story. And I now, can guess who our favorite is, but go well, ahead and interestingly tell me enough, my favorites, I was actually had three votes for Ant Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's weird. Okay. As my favorite, and three votes for Fantastic Four as my favorite. So um, okay. those were tied for me. And your three votes for Fantastic Four, you didn't have anyone else you voted for more than once. So okay. um, between the two of us, the Fantastic Four was our favorite, and Ant-Man was our least favorite for the year of 1960. Okay, well, we're not wrong. I mean, yeah. you could easily say Human Torch, I guess, too. It's I certainly really agree with our Fantastic Four pick. If I were to put Kirby's Ant-Man in my brain next to the Human Torch, yeah. I would have said Ant-Man definitely more than the Torch. But on a case-by-case basis, on any particular month, Ant-Man was often you, worse than the Torch. You know, I remember there being some Ant-Man issues that seemed awfully repetitive, though. Yep. So maybe there that were. was it. And I didn't like, as much as you did, the little Ant-Man contraptions and stuff that they kept banging over our head, you know, his launcher and all that stuff, mm-hmm. the, the Ant-Man car or whatever. So, yeah, I could see. Weird. Weird the torch got away with it somehow. Yep. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to keep, I'm going to keep this count. I'm not going to tie it in with 1963 unless we just want to uh, conglomerate it all together. But 1963, I'll, I'll restart the counts. And as we go forward for the next, I think it's honestly, it's going to take a while for us to get through 1963. <laughs> It might take yeah. us uh, the better part of a year to get through a year of comics. So well, depends on how good they are, I guess. It depends on how much we talk about them. Yeah, we should put a graph on the site. I'm going to figure that out because you're probably doing this. You're writing this down, I assume. So we can, yeah, we can excel this and make some pretty charts and keep it going or something. That might be interesting. Um, we have definitely gone long on this episode. Yeah, yeah. but we wanted to talk about Iron Man of Fantastic. Uh, the Fantastic. Iron Man and Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go, I have been remiss in the last several episodes in thanking people for their support of the show. And since we have launched and we have gone live and people are liking us, I do want to make sure I keep on tabs of that. So just a real quick, I want to send thank you for liking the show on Facebook to Trey Hooks, Christopher Luke, David Weissman, Frank Roach, Glade Packer, Angus Livingston, Bill Bear, Joshua Lappin-Bertoni, some some freak show named Michael Kaiser, hmm. David Bland, Oliver Viller, and J. David Weeder. My good um, Dave. thank y'all for liking the show. Hey, he did he did a show with us. He did. I also recognize and Josh and Glade. Yes. Glade has been a podcaster. He uh he keeps on kicking around the idea of a two thousand AD podcast and Glade. Ooh. I will be listening to that if you do that. So do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um over on Twitter we have following us um I think the last person I mentioned was my daughter, Lily Wilson. Um, we also have Mike Staley, who does an Iron Man podcast, so he's looking forward to hearing our take on things. Um, Unearthly Visions, which is a vision blog. William Dixon, James Scanlon IV, David Fiore, a good friend David. Tolfer, who's Tolfer. Uh, Chris Statos, um, he, that's the podcast moniker for the International Man of Mystery. Another J. David Weeder, probably the same one, but now he's on Twitter too. Uh, we have Evan Galdine. We have Super Bowl champions. Um, wow. That's Philly Spider 85. He is decided to call himself Super Bowl champions right now. I'm not sure exactly what he does 
or why he's doing that. But I know him through the drunk Pete Saturday. Because the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. Oh. I know. I had to non-nerd it. Sorry, guys. But I do kind of watch. I watch the sports thing sometimes, too. Every once in a while. You're not the only nerd who watches sports. I just don't understand you. That's all. Yeah. Um, Longbox Crusade from the Longbox Crusade podcast follows us. Mark D. White, who is a writer of various comic book characters and philosophy. So he has an Amazon page if you uh, look him up. Um, Marvel Comics Adventure, which is a guy podcasting about reading through Marvel. So, you know, <gasps> we're, we're writing our, right up his alley. Our competition. School of Con. Yeah, I know, right? School of Comics, Ken Barr Jr., Kyle Chris, and Sean O'Keefe. Um, I like Sean O'Keefe's uh, Twitter legend. It says, I'm sort of like Costco. I'm big, I'm not fancy, and I dare you not to like me. <laughs> So thank you that all works. for supporting the show through your likes. If you want to show your support on a regular basis, um, one of the biggest things you can do is whenever we announce a new episode, share it and retweet it and get it out there in your own spheres of influence. And that would be probably the biggest help in increasing the visibility of the show. Some of y'all have been really awesome about doing that since the show started. And I really want to say thank you. Um, I'll try to compose a list for next time to make sure I can thank people by name. But yeah, retweeting and sharing episodes is, 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 is a great, great help. Yes, very much. Also reviews on whatever. I don't know if anything besides iTunes does reviews, but iTunes reviews are helpful. Maybe some sort of Google thing does reviews. I'm not sure. Um, and you can find all our stuff, like we always say every episode, at makearsmarvel.com. So follow us in any way you want to follow us and share our stuff, however it's convenient to you. All right. Well, um, next episode is a new year, 1963. Yep. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, those Marvel Universe is going to be a whole lot bigger. We will be covering and, Guns, um, Gunsmoke Western number 75, Love Romances number 104, and Patsy and Heedy number 87. <laughs> what the hell you say? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's what we will not be covering. Did I right? misspeak? <laughs> right. Well... <laughs> Until Amazing Fantasy gets uncancelled and they do issues 16 and 17, make ours marvel. marvel.